1 Corinthians 7, verse 25 says, Now, concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. So we jump back into chapter 7 as we continue to make our way through the entire fairly lengthy letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. 16 chapters altogether, one of the longer letters of the New Testament. The first six chapters, chapters 1 through 6, deal with problems Paul had with the Corinthians. Chapters 7 through 16 deal with questions the Corinthians had for Paul. A very easy way to break up the book and to categorize it, if you will. Chapter 7 specifically deals with questions about marriage. There's a catchy title, right? Chapter 7, questions about marriage. And that's where we started, concerning the things of which they had written to Paul. They wrote to Paul, said, hey, we've got some questions. And have you ever heard the saying, the devil is in the details? You've heard that saying? So when you start to get down to the details of things, that's when people can have differences of opinions. We might agree in a general sense, but now when we start to get to the details, now there's opportunity for discussion, conflict, and those things can get hairy when you get down to the details. And for the Corinthian church, remember, they were a divided church. They were thinking differently about all kinds of topics, from resurrection to spiritual gifts to marriage. And it wasn't just about marriage in general. They wanted to know specifics about marriage. And isn't that where we live as Christians? We get these general principles from the Lord, but he didn't address every individual issue or circumstance that we go through in life. So we have to figure out, well, how does God's word apply to my particular situation? So that's called being skillful in using the word of God. Well, the Corinthians needed help from Paul. They didn't have a Bible. It was just being written. So they needed help from Paul to understand how God would view and what God's advice would be to them about a number of issues regarding marriage. He dealt with two Christian people that were married, and he says that relationship should not be platonic, but it should be romantic. And we talked about that. We talked about what happens if you're in a mixed marriage where you're an unbeliever married to a believer. What do I do with that? We talked about if you're single, because you've been divorced already. Paul writes a section to the unmarried and to widows. The unmarried are those that have been married and now are not married. We call it divorced. And maybe there are those that Paul writes to that are single because they're widows. They've been married, but their spouse died and now they're a widow. Is it right to get remarried? Should I stay single? What's the best? What's God's desire? What's the most spiritual? All these questions would be asked of Paul. Those are specific details, specific to the lives of the people in Corinth. And now we have the final topic in our study of marriage that will take us through the end of the chapter. And it's going to be Paul's address to those who are single and have never been married. So if I could title the message for today, I would title it The Single Life, Unmarried, Unrestricted, and Unashamed. See, Paul has tremendous advice for the unmarried, those that have never been married, or even for those that are hoping someday to be married, but it just hasn't happened yet. Paul would see singleness not as a plague that needed to be cured, but as a privilege that the single people should capitalize on. 
So he begins in verse 25 with now concerning virgins. So it's got that marking that, hey, a new topic is coming. I'm changing gears a little bit. Now concerning virgins. It's the Greek word parthenos, which means someone who's not been married. Virgin. Maybe those two things don't necessarily go together in our culture, but that would be the idea. So it's another question they had. What about unmarried people? What's best? Now, Paul says, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. So Paul says, look, I can't go to the red letters and say Jesus addressed this specifically. He did talk about how it was better because marriage is a lifelong commitment that for some, unless you can remain single, unless you're gifted that way, it's better to get married. But the details we don't have from Jesus. So Paul gives a detailed answer to their question. We have the answers, but we don't know the exact questions because we don't have that letter. But Paul gives them an answer and notice the humility that he gives it with. He says, I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. So Paul's going to give his sanctified, godly opinion. And this is no less scripture than any other thing we've read in the Bible. Remember, the epistles are all kind of explanation of what Jesus said. So Paul is just giving them an explanation and understanding of what Jesus said, what he understands about God, applies to their specific situation. Now, scholars argue, is this unmarried men, unmarried women? He really addresses both, anybody who's single, because sometimes the word parthenos, it can mean young virgin girls or boys. It can mean both, young, unmarried, either one. So really both are addressed here. Verse 26, he says, I suppose therefore that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Are you married? Don't seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Are you single? Then don't seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Well, that's good to know, isn't it? Nevertheless, such will have trouble, pressure in the flesh, but I would spare you. Isn't that interesting? Paul says, "Ah, marriage is a lot of trouble. I'm trying to spare you from this. He doesn't begin by saying it's good for a man to be single. Did you notice that? He begins by saying it's good for a man to remain as he is. And that's the point Paul's been making all along. Remember previously it said, look, if you got saved when you were a slave, then be a Christian slave. And in that day, slavery was very widespread, a very important part of their economic structure. Millions of slaves in the Roman Empire had a different connotation than it did in our contemporary understanding of slavery. But nonetheless, he said, if you're a slave, Luke, the physician who wrote the book of Acts and the gospel, Luke, he was a slave, a slave and a doctor. So a different connotation. However, he says, look, if you were a slave when you got saved, then stay a slave. If you were a free person, then you're Christ's slave. So whatever state you're in, when you get saved, don't be fooled into thinking that somehow you've got to change your circumstance to really live fully for Christ. And he said that before. He's just saying the same thing, but applying it to a different situation. Isn't that good news for us? Sometimes we're under that false impression that, you know, if if only I was in this different situation, then I could live fully for the Lord. Wherever you are today, God wants you to live fully for the Lord right where you are. That's where he has you. And we tend to judge things by, well, I could do more over there. I could do more if. Well, God isn't about more. He's about you just being Christ wherever you are. More is an American concept. More is our idea. We tend to judge things that way. But Paul's saying, look, I just want you to remain as you are. But he says, the idea that he's getting at here is that there are some here today, right here, right now, that are single. 
and you're just wishing and romanticizing and longing to be married. And that would be some of us. But then there are others here that are saying, you know, I'm married, but I'm longing, I'm romanticizing, I'm wishing I could be single. And you'll have to let those other folks know, hey, it's not all it's cracked up to be all the time. But what Paul wants us to know is don't be preoccupied with your relationship status. That's what he's saying here. Don't be preoccupied with your relationship status. Did you notice that he said, if you're bound to a wife, don't seek to be loose. I mean, if you're married, don't seek. If you're loose from a wife, don't seek. That's his point here. The word seek is in the present imperative, and it means don't keep on pursuing. Don't keep on seeking. Don't be preoccupied with this chase. So for the married, he would say, look, if you're married, stop fantasizing and romanticizing about how much you could do for the Lord if you were single. It just doesn't do any good. It doesn't draw you closer to your spouse. You are where you are. And I think sometimes we waste a lot of time wishing we were somewhere else. And Paul's saying, don't get preoccupied with thinking about, oh, if only, if only, if only. Serve the Lord right where you are. And if you're single, he would say, don't be preoccupied with the search for Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Wherever you are, be all in. Well, then what if they would ask, what if maybe you would ask, what if I meet Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright, not Mr. Or Mrs. Wright now, Mr. Or Mrs. Wright, what do I do? Well, Paul says they get married. That's fine. I have no trouble with that. Paul is not anti-marriage. He's just, we'll find out, very pro-single which is really a little bit of a change maybe in philosophy, a change in thought for us. Paul is very pro-single, but marriage, he says, it's not a sin. We're not talking about matters of sin and not sin. We're talking about matters of opinion and preference. And this is wisdom. But remember, he says, we can't overlook the context of the advice he's giving. How many of you understand that advice always is dependent upon context? Wisdom is truth applied in a context. You remember the book of Ecclesiastes, that old song, that old understanding that there's a time for everything under the sun. There's a time to cast away. There's a time to gather. There's a time to be born, a time to die. There's time for everything under the sun. But doing the right thing at the right time is wisdom. Don't plant tomatoes in December unless you have a greenhouse. And that's another story. You know, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit Wisdom is knowing that you shouldn't include it in your fruit salad. So there's a difference there. Knowledge versus wisdom. So we have to look at the context as Paul shares. He says, because of the present distress, there's something serious happening in Corinth that relates to the Corinthians' lives. This present distress, something of necessity, something urgent, something that speaks of a bent arm that's lifted to meet a need, lifting your hand to help meet an urgent need. This can be imposed either by duty, it's my duty to do it, or it's an immediate circumstance, something that's happening at the time. So it could be a local circumstance. For instance, let's say you were a Christian, you lived in California right now, and you're dealing with all these wildfires that are happening. That would be a present distress, and that might call for certain decisions to be made at that time. might call for you to step up and help out, meet some needs. It could be in Corinth, there was a a local plague or a local famine of some sort. Could be, Paul's reflecting on the possibility of 
persecution against Christians increasing. That could be the local distress or the present distress. See, Paul tells us that there's a distress. They knew what he was talking about, but we only have one side of the conversation. We don't know. You see, Paul writes to the Corinthians in AD 57. They're in the Roman Empire. Do you know who the emperor is? It's Emperor Nero. Emperor Nero is a nutcase. And some of the worst persecution of Christians happened under Emperor Nero. So this is 57 AD. Paul writes, by 64 AD, very soon, the Christian persecution is going to get to its height under Nero. That's when Rome is burnt and he's going to blame the Christians. So it could be there's some senses that persecution against Christians is ramping up. And that's why he's saying, hey, don't be preoccupied with your marital status. There's other things to be thinking about. But what's most likely is that what Paul has a sense of is the soon return of Christ. Jesus himself spoke of the fact that we're about to celebrate Christmas, his first coming, but there will be a second coming of Christ. He ascended into heaven and he is coming again to the earth. And that will be a time of great tribulation, great difficulty for those that are on earth when the day of the Lord comes. How does the day of the Lord come? When is this going to happen? Are we going to all know about it? Are we going to all be prepared? Hopefully we are, but it says the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. So we're always supposed to live ready. So if that's true, based on that, Paul says, hey, this present distress, the Lord may be coming back any day now. And that's going to come with a lot of difficulty and that's going to come with a lot of circumstances and and maybe you want to consider how you live based on that fact. See, the present conditions, listen carefully, present conditions can affect all kinds of decisions, including relationship decisions. I mean, what if you lived in China? What if you were a Christian today living in China, considering you're married, single, what do I do? Did you read the article? Have you heard the news about China's new social credit system? Well, it's happening now. The article is from September of this year. The title is China's Chilling Social Credit System is straight out of dystopian sci-fi and it's already switched on. It's been in the pipeline for years, a sprawling technological mass surveillance network, the likes of which the world has never seen and it's already been switched on. China's social credit system, which is expected to be fully operational by 2020, doesn't just monitor the nation's almost 1.4 billion citizens. It's also designed to control and coerce them in a gigantic social engineering experiment that some have called the gamification of trust. That's because the massive project, which has been slowly coming together for over a decade, is about assigning an individual trust score to each and every citizen and to businesses. According to the Communist Party, the system will allow the trustworthy to roam freely under heaven while making it hard for the discredited to take even a single step. To pull this off, they're going to harness the immense reach of China's technological infrastructure, 200 million CCTV cameras. The idea is that these ever-watchful eyes will be hooked up to facial recognition systems and cross-checked with financial, medical records, and legal records. With the whole apparatus regulated, and interpreted by advanced big data crunching AI networks. The sweeping dystopia of it all is uncannily reminiscent of the TV show Black Mirror. A quote, this is potentially a new way for the government to manage the economy and society, economist Martin Korzempa says. The goal is algorithmic governance. Now the way this works, that your social score is also linked to your relationship circles. So in other words, if your brother or your wife put something online on social media that negatively reflects the government, it affects your social score. Your social score goes down. And if your social score goes down, do you know what that limits? 
That limits the hotels you can stay in. That limits your travel. You'll be denied a visa because of your social score. Limits the schools that your children can attend and a host of other things. So that might be a situation where you say, you know, if that's the case and my social score and my coming and going is linked to my family and and how I live can affect their safety, then maybe it's best to stay single. Think about what could be like in America if the Bible was outlawed. We have history that tells us that there were times when children would be brought and threatened with murder and death if you did not renounce your faith. Imagine that, being a Christian in a country where it was not free to be a Christian and and having to make that choice of renouncing your faith or watching your child die. That's called a present distress that is heightened by a marital situation. So, but Paul is saying, I'm doing this because married people will have trouble in the flesh, but I want to spare you from that trouble. Again, we don't know what the distress is, but we know that's true in a general sense, that marriage brings in some challenges that single life does not have. A miserable marriage can be a very emotionally draining. I could not do what I do as a pastor if I did not have a home life that was emotionally healthy. It would be very emotionally draining. I'll refer to John Wesley now. You know, John Wesley was the man who God used to start the Methodist movement. Did you know he had a really crummy marriage? You didn't know that? This is quite interesting. The biographer tells even of the story, not just that his wife Molly was trouble, but that he was trouble too. John Wesley had his share of troubles, but there's a story that Molly Wesley was seen dragging her husband around the room by his hair. You will never catch Helga doing that to me for obvious reasons. (laughs) And what about the correspondence that John Wesley continued to maintain despite his wife's objections with his female admirers? John Wesley is well known as the intrepid evangelist of Methodism who traveled a quarter of a million miles on horseback, who claimed the world as his parish, and who rose at four each morning for his devotional time. But his home was a shambles. Four years after his marriage, he wrote to his brother Charles, love is rot. What a commentary on marriage from this man. Turns out he waited till much later in life to get married and he had multiple opportunities, which he turned down when he was earlier in his life. But many would say he turned down one less opportunity than he should have. Solomon said two are better than one. And we know that in general, that is true. But in some situations, that's not true. I remember a time when Helga and I had first started dating. We were driving to Florida so I could meet her parents for the first time. And we had stopped to take a little canoe trip. We decided to rent a canoe together and we got off on some lake. And I'm telling you what, it's a miracle we decided to stay together and to get married because that canoe trip was an absolute disaster. I was angry. She was in tears. I don't remember how long it took for us to finally talk again, but it was miserable. And in that case, two were not better than one. It was really tough because you have to be rowing in the same direction. You have to be coordinating, cooperating. We were learning. We've been married 23 years. In some situations, flying solo can be an advantage. And if you don't believe me, just ask Cecil and Eunice. Well, Steve, who are Cecil and Eunice? A wonderful elderly couple. All their lives, Cecil, every time they went to the state fair, he wanted to ride in the helicopter. But Eunice, his tight-fisted, stubborn wife, would always say, Cecil, it's $50, and $50 is $50. You cannot ride in a helicopter. Year after year, Cecil would hear this. And finally, 
they're at the state fair and Cecil says, Eunice, I'm 85 years old. I mean, I don't know how much longer I'm going to live. I don't know if I don't ride that helicopter now. I don't know if I'll ever be able to ride the helicopter. And they begin to argue about it. And the helicopter pilot hears them arguing. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a ride in the helicopter. And if you can stay quiet the entire time, I'll give you the ride for free. So they accept the deal. Off they go in the helicopter. And that pilot, I mean, he does everything he can to make them scream out in fear or terror or even argue with each other. Anything he's trying, he's looping and diving and twirling and anything he can do with his helicopter. And nothing. He finally lands and he turns around back to Cecil and he says, man, I am impressed with you. The whole time I did everything I could to make you scream out and you never said a word. I'm impressed. And Cecil said, yeah, you know, it was really hard, especially... When Eunice fell out, I was tempted to say something. (laughs) But you know, $50 is $50. I think Cecil would say, sometimes it's better to fly alone. Verse 29, but this I say, brethren, the time is short, or literally contracted or shortened, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. So Paul says, look, don't be preoccupied with your relationship status. And he also says, don't be naive about the future. It's closer than you think. You see, now Paul is talking to both the married and the single. Did you see that? These truths in verse 29, this is the bulk of what he's trying to say right here, applies to everybody, both married and single. Because he says, even those that have wives, so that's married people, right? But there's a certain way that they should live. It's a change in perspective. Because he says the time is shortened. And this is an interesting word. It means the time is contracted, drawn together. It's only used here. And in the book of Acts chapter 5, you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? They lie about some land they sold. They both drop dead. They come in to get Ananias and they wrap him up and take him away. That word wrapping up is the same word used here. When you wrap something up, it gets shorter and shorter. So the idea is that Paul is saying, look, time is winding up or winding down. You have you want to look at that. So I brought the tape measure to say, here's the picture of time. Now, for some people... Paul is thinking about time of our life, like the time that we live. How many of you have a sense that like time is beating up? Like a woman in labor pains, that's how the end of this era, the end of this age is explained. Like a woman having labor pains, at first they're few and far between, but as she gets closer to the birth, the labor pains come quicker, the contractions come quicker, they're more intense. Well, that's what's going to happen leading up to the end of the age. Time When Jesus comes back, time as we know it will change. There's an age that Christians live for. We live for the kingdom age. And we live for that age now. And so Paul says the time is shortened. And I don't know how much time you think is left for you, but let's say an inch is a thousand years. There's three inches right there. That's pretty short. And the more I turn it, the shorter it gets. And time eventually is going to run out. And when Paul said this over 2,000 years ago, it applied, but it applies even more to us today. Wouldn't you agree? We're 2,000 years. Remember, to the Lord, a day is a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is like a day. God sees time differently. 
And the time is drawing close. The time is shortening, contracting for what to happen. He says it right there. The last sentence is the form of this world is passing away. The schema is what it says in Greek, the schematic, the flow, the program of action. If you can read a schematic diagram, you see this is how everything flows, how electricity flows, how plumbing flows. This is the flow. The world that we live in has a flow and it's temporary. And everything in this world is part of that temporary schema, that temporary flow, that temporary program of action. This world and everything that belongs to this world, including, listen close, including marriage and family. These things are all passing away. Do you remember when you got married? Maybe the pastor led you in vows and you said, till death do us part. Because marriage is an earthly institution. It has great heavenly ramifications and great heavenly meaning, but it's an earthly institution. And so is family. Look, when we are all in glory with the Lord, we are going to know each other better than we do now. Right now, sin is in the way. How many of you go like, I get frustrated with people. Anybody get frustrated with people? Anybody think people get frustrated with you? Yes, people get frustrated with you. Because we're all living in these sinful bodies and we're trying to work it out here on planet Earth. And when we're in heaven, all that is gone. So that closeness of a marriage, that oneness that happens in a marriage, we'll have that with everybody and more when we're with the Lord. You'll know your spouse. You'll know your kids. You're not going to be dumber in heaven than you are on earth, but we'll know everybody that way. So this world is going to yield itself to a new kingdom, to a different kingdom. And notice it says, for the form of this world is passing away. We had a funeral here yesterday. Someone had passed away. That means their life was here for a time. We knew them, and then it faded out into the distance. A couple years ago, we got to take a trip to Germany. Anybody ever driven on the Autobahn? Oh, man. So here I am on the Autobahn. We got this rented Volkswagen Passat. I got the wife and kids. I'm doing a hundred. I'm scared out of my mind. All I can think about is what if I blow a tire? So I'm driving along. I'm white knuckling at a hundred miles an hour. Kids are sleeping in the back seat. And this guy pulls up behind me like they're insistent upon there's the driving lane and the passing lane. And you better not be in the passing lane when you're going too slow. So they push you out of the way. I mean, they honk you out of the way. And this guy blows by me. Oh, he must have been doing 130. 140, I mean, he comes by and then boom, gone to the distance. And that's the word passing away, meaning to come and then to pass on by. And Paul says, that's what time is like. It's here for a minute, but then off it is in the distance and it just disappears. The time is shortened. The day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. And when you have that perspective on the things of this world, it changes the things you long for, the things you value, the things you pursue. I mean, at some point, time runs out. Paul thought it was going to be in AD 57, 58. Do you think the apostle Paul in AD 57, 58 could have ever imagined the year 2018? He would have thought, no way, no way. How about you trying to imagine the year 2200? That's like, wow, what in the world is going to be like? But what if you knew that this next couple of months, that's all we got? What would you live for? How would it affect your decisions? How it affects the things you long for, plan for? It would have a great impact. It would have a great impact on marriage and family, how I think about these things. You see, he says, let those who are married be as though they were not. And the guys underline that in their Bibles. They say, honey, that's my new memory verse. See that right there? Guys that are married, be as though they're not. I'm going hunting. 
And of course, that's not what Paul is saying. He's already told the guys, don't deny your wife the affection that's due her. But what he's saying is that marriage and family are a good thing. Paul's not anti-marriage, but those good things can become bad things if they distract us from our service and worship of the Lord. I've met with young couples, newlyweds, and during premarital counseling, and, oh, we're going to live for the Lord. And then once they get married, life happens. And all of a sudden now they've got each other. They decide that Sunday's a day to sleep in. We're working hard. Now we start a family. We've got kids. And all of a sudden, we don't have time for the things of God anymore. And Paul says, be careful. Don't let your marriage, don't let your family become an idol where all of your life is given over to the service of a temporary institution at the expense of serving the heavenly reality. The ideal, I'm thankful in my life, for my wife, we get to serve the Lord together. I think that's the ideal. That's what Paul's saying. If you were unmarried, he would say you can serve the Lord freely and openly. So as married couples, as married people, serve the Lord freely with your whole life, with your whole marriage. It changes the way we experience emotions, sorrow, and joy. Let those who are sad be as though they weren't. Let those who rejoice be as though they didn't. So you get a call from your friend. Hey, guess what? I'm engaged. I'm getting married. Oh, sorry to hear that. Man, that's a bummer. Jesus may come back any day. Oh, I didn't get the promotion. So what? What if the world ends next month, tomorrow? Would you be really bummed out about it if you knew like your boss was going to get caught up in the fires of judgment there for eternity? What about our perspective on stuff? Let those who buy be as though they did not possess. Do you have possessions that possess you? Have you encumbered your life with all kinds of stuff? You're buying, you're selling, you're just wrapped up in the things of the world. Paul would say, be careful because these are temporary things. That thing you own, it's going to break. That thing you have, you buy it, then you think, oh, I'm going to buy this. Then it begins to own you because you got to fix it. And then you got to take care of it. Computers and cell phones. How many of you like get distracted by your cell phone? That's what Paul's trying to say. Don't let these things use them, but don't become distracted by them. That's what he says in the last part. Those who use the things of this world as not misusing them. We're in the world. We have jobs to do. We have to have a car. It's got to get us from point A to point B. But don't abuse that. Don't look for the things of the world to satisfy your deepest needs. That's when you abuse the things of the world. You can use them without abusing them. When's the last time you binged on YouTube videos? When's the last time you binged on Netflix TV? When's the last time you binged on the Word of God? Don't be consumed by the things you consume, is all Paul is trying to say. Verse 32, he wraps it up. He says, hey, here's what I'm trying to say. I want you to be without care, without anxiety. It's the Greek word marimna. It's used by Luke in the parable of the four soils. You know the parable where the the sower goes out to sow some seed and falls on these different kinds of soil. One type of soil it falls on is where the weeds grow up with it and they choke it out. You know what I'm talking about? The weeds, do you know what those weeds represent in the parable? The cares, same word, the cares of this world, the cares of this life. And when you're married, all Paul's trying to say is when you're married or you got a bunch of stuff or you're accumulating things, that these things become distractions from the things that are really essential and important in life, the things that are eternal. We can live our whole life living for temporary things at the end of our life, but what do I actually have to show for it? My kids are going to argue over the money that we gave them, that we leave them when I die, and it can be a real mess. 
when you're married, you have real true cares, real things to care about. And that's what Paul's going to say next. He's going to explain this. He says, let me explain what I'm trying to say. He says, he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how we may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how we may please his wife. Now, this is not a negative thing. A negative thing, Paul is just being a realist. He's saying that when you're single, you have this wonderful opportunity to live for the Lord completely, your whole life. You don't have to check with anybody if you want to go on a trip. You don't have to check with anybody if you can use your finances that way. You don't have anybody to cooperate with or communicate with. You just can choose, hey, I'm going to go on the mission trip. It's going to cost me five grand, but I'm doing it. I feel the Lord's calling me to it. But when you're married, you got to work that out with your spouse. And you must work that out with your spouse. You cannot make a decision, a $5,000 decision, unilaterally. You got to talk about that. You got to come to grips with that. You got to seek the Lord together on that. That takes time and patience and work. So Paul says, look, he was married, cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Here's a story I heard about a policeman that responded to a challenging phone call. 911 rings and he jumps into his squad car, goes to the call, finds out what's going on. He calls back to the station and says, man, this is a really interesting case I got here. He says, you'll never believe it. A woman just shot her husband because he walked over the floor she had just mopped. Well, the sergeant says, well, have you arrested her? And he says, no way, not yet. The floor is still wet. I'm not getting near. See, when we have a family, there's real things to consider. Wife, kids, college, braces, retirement, little league, vacation, where are we going to spend Thanksgiving? Your parents, my parents, all these things are considerations. The married woman, she has to make sure she's caring for her home, caring for the intimate needs of her husband and vice versa. A single person has more freedom. Would we agree, church? Married people say amen. The single people, I hope you're listening. You have more freedom to do those things. The biggest challenges we face are when married people try to act like and live like single people and single people try to play house and act like married people. If you're called to be married, then be married. And if you're called to be single, be single. Don't get those two confused. If you're married, then communicate, work together, cooperate. The two have become one. Don't make unilateral decisions. And if you're single, don't shack up. Don't get into that. Get married. And Paul says, look, I say this for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Do you hear the heart of Paul? This is what he's trying to say. He's not down on marriage. He certainly seems to promote and enjoy his single life. I mean, look what the apostle Paul was able to accomplish by being single. He traveled 10,000 miles. He got stoned to death, dragged out of town. I mean, it's hard to do that with a family. Got your kids putting Band-Aids on you. Is dad going to wake up? I mean, it's this challenging stuff. Jesus, on the other hand, lived his life single. I serve God, his God, singly. I say this for your own problem. Paul says, I'm not trying to put a, a slip knot on you, a halter. I'm not trying to constrain you into this. But I want you to be without distraction. It's the same word used of Mary and Martha. You remember when Martha was busy about all the things of the kitchen, serving the people that were there, making lunch and all that. And Mary was just sitting at Jesus' feet. How many of you have seen and experienced the fact that you never seem to have time to sit at Jesus' feet anymore? You're so busy with all the stuff and the things to do. And we do it to ourselves. 
we bring it on ourselves because somehow we got to have this because everybody else has this. And the TV tells me if I don't have this, I'm not meaningful. I can't be happy and I'm not somebody. So we buy into it and we got to have this stuff. And Paul's just saying, look, people that live for the Lord and you have that sense of peace, you don't need all that stuff. You can have it and it doesn't own you. You can walk away from it if you need to. That's what Paul wants for me, for you, not to be mentally distracted. So for the young, hope to be bride and groom, you're waiting for Mr. or Mrs. Wright. You are in a great place. Don't burden yourself with worldly distractions. Don't be worried about or bogged down with, when am I going to get married? When is it going to happen? Everybody else is getting married. My clock is ticking. Time is running out. I got to do it. Just serve the Lord. Well, if you're called to be married, then let the Lord bring that person to your life. Paul in no way suggests that being young and single is a great time so you can make your career advancements, make your first millions, buy fancy and expensive stuff so you can impress all your friends on Facebook. That's not what Paul's suggesting. Paul's suggesting what more like Amy Carmichael understood. Nearly 100 years ago, 28-year-old Amy Carmichael was from a windy little village on the north coast of Ireland, and she began her missionary work in India. She was single, and on the very eve of her leaving the docks, an opportunity which looked towards the other life, the married life, was presented to her. And with the combined reticence of being Victorian and being Irish, she never said how or by whom this opportunity was presented. She spoke very little of the matters of the heart. She was also a thoroughgoing Christian with a soldier's determination to carry out her commander's orders. Single life, she believed, was not only a part of those orders, it was also a gift. She tried not to suggest in any way that her gift was superior. Remember, she wrote, our God did not say to me, I have something greater for you to do. This life is not greater than the other, but it is different. It was simply God's call to her. And it may just be God's call to some of you. This chapter really impacted me as I read it and studied it out. I thought, you know, we're way too hard on people that are single. There's way too much pressure on people to get married and to be married. And the Lord is saying, hey, we don't know when the end is coming. And wouldn't it be great for a single person to say, you know, I feel like God is, no, I don't feel I have to get married. I don't feel like I'm incomplete. I have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my husband. He is the one that loves me, the one that cares for my needs. I can be satisfied in him. It's a radical idea, isn't it? That there are actually people that can be satisfied only in their relationship with the Lord. And if that's not you, I'm really excited about marriage, then get married. It's not sin. Now, verse 36 to the end gives us kind of a challenging interpretive situation, a situation that we don't know exactly what Paul's addressing. So we kind of have to guess the wording is a little bit vague. Verse 36 says, but if any man thinks he's behaving improperly toward his virgin, maybe some of your Bibles say toward his betrothed, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, you stand steadfast in his heart, having no necessity to marry, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, he does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. You can tell what Paul uh, is a fan of, can't you? So it could be that one scenario is we're talking about two engaged people. They're engaged to be married. They're questioning, well, should we go through with it or not? And Paul says, look, if you need to get married, if you're called to that, then go ahead and get married. He says, it's not sin. But 
if you can avoid that, if you can stay single and live for the Lord that way, that's great. That's even better. It could be two engaged people deciding if they should go through with it or not. Or I think more likely, this is the one I agree with, is it's probably a father and his unmarried daughter. Now, remember, they lived in the era of arranged marriages. And the father had complete and total control over his family, even to the point of capital punishment against his children. And he would be responsible to give his daughter away in marriage. And he is a Christian father. You know, we limit our kids, don't we, as Christian parents? You can't watch that TV show. You can't go to their house because they watch those movies. You can't go over there because there's that music. We limit our kids because we think it's best for them. As a father, as a Roman father, a Christian father, you might say, you know what? I think the best thing for you is to live single. So I'm not going to give you away in marriage. And he would have that right. But Paul says, maybe the young girls are going, hey, but we want to get married. Well, what do we do if we don't want to give our kids away in marriage because we think they should be single and live for the Lord, but they want to be married? Paul says, then let them get married. It's okay. It's okay. He who does not give her in marriage does better. He who gives her in marriage does well. Oh, by the way, interesting wording. If she is past the flower of youth, isn't that lovely? She's no longer in full bloom. She started to wilt. She's on her way to compost. <laughs> And Paul finishes it up, verse 39, with kind of a side note about being a widow. He says, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. So when you get married, you're bound into that marriage by law for life. But if a husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes. She's free. So death breaks the marriage bond and the person is free to get married if they want to. But Paul says she should only marry in the Lord. Only marry a Christian husband or only a Christian wife. If you get remarried after you've been a widow, then only in the Lord. Be careful who you choose. There was a woman that was part of our church for years named Aline, and she was a widow. Her husband had passed away some years before we met, and she served this church like crazy. She said, you know, I'm going to stay single, and she stayed single until she died of breast cancer. And she prayed for me, served this church, served this body faithfully year after year, completely satisfied with the calling that the Lord had in her life. But verse 40, Paul says that she is happier if she remains as she is, a single woman, a widow, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. Amen, church? Now remember, Paul will give advice to widows in First Timothy for the young widows. Hey, don't become a busybody get remarried. So Paul is not totally against marriage, but I hope you see the tension here that Paul is saying to us. Wherever you are, be there. Don't be focused on, am I married? Am I going to get married? Will I ever find someone? I'm married and I want to be out of the marriage. Just focus on the Lord. 